Well, welcome to the second of these two public lectures. Um, I'm really uh, glad to see uh, such a group here. Uh, when we thought about Professor Gandhi coming back and trying to top uh, last year's lectures, he suggested titles of something that, because of my ignorance, I didn't know much about. So I immediately went to where the students go, Wikipedia. Um, also the Amar Chitar Katha, you know, the, the comic books of choice. Um, and I discovered I kind of like this guy tonight. I think he's uh, quite interesting. But I also discovered, and this is mainly to the uh, people of not Indian descent here, if you think this is, for you, a somewhat obscure historical set of issues, it seems to be part of a current debate in India about who this person is. And you can understand why the first generation looked at him as part of an anti-colonial set of leaders. And some of the current people writing who are more, I guess, pro-Modi are interested in stressing his uh, Islamic heritage and not in a very complimentary way. So there are these, if you go on Kindle or Amazon, you'll find these books, relatively cheap, by the way, about um, Tipu Sultan, the tyrant of Mysore. You know, uh, and again, very uncomplimentary to Nehru. Um, and so that way that history returns, I think, for, for folks who may not have a huge stake uh, because of their background or their interest in India, the way that history returns to the present, maybe almost as it has at Charlottesville or in my own study of Russia where they debate what the past is like, uh, history is really never dead. So we're lucky to have Professor Gandhi here with us. Uh, I think most of you have attended his lectures before, so I'll try to be even briefer than Professor Rashapi. He has a, a varied career that really uh, touches on all aspects of a good life to me. Um, he's been a, a political activist, editor, someone who's been on, I think, the right side of so many issues, um, a member of the Upper House, written I think when I tried to count 16 books um, in wonderful English and about an incredible spread of issues, uh, three or four on uh, Mahatma Gandhi, a book about comparing the revolt of 1857 with our uh, Civil War, regional history of, of Punjab, a set of essays on different important uh, leaders of nonviolence in South Asia. So we've been lucky. This is the third year he's been here as a HANA professor. Uh, I do want to say one thing about what a wonderful teacher he, he is. Uh, I've been able to attend three classes now, which has made me immeasurably smarter, even if I'm still looking at Wikipedia or Indian comic books. I, I actually have benefited more from his lectures and attending his talks. So without further ado, I really do want you to welcome uh, Professor Raj Mahan Gandhi.
So I'm going to speak uh, about Tipu Sultan, a little bit also about his father, Haider Ali, and also about their Brahmin minister, Purnaya, as the title of my lecture does state. Um, yesterday, we looked at how in 1760, in a crucial battle, the British defeated the French, more or less ending French influence in India. But not long after defeating the French, the British East India Company faced another strong foe, and this time it was an Indian foe, the Kingdom of Mysore, uh, run first by Hyder Ali and then by his son Tipu Sultan. Uh, can we show that uh, map of uh, more or less Tipu's? Yeah. So you can see the very large chunk of southern India is colored in that, that space. So that is what Tipu Sultan uh, was able to control for 20 plus years. Uh, let's show a map of modern Karnataka. Yeah. So uh, there is a good deal of overlap between the kingdom of uh, Tipu Sultan and the modern state of Karnataka. And the, by the way, as, as you all know, uh, we in India are wonderful in always changing the names of our cities, changing the spellings of our cities. Uh, so the great city of Bangalore, which until two, three years ago was spoken of as the silicon capital of South Asia, is now no longer Bangalore, it is Bengaluru. Uh, and this city used to be called Mysore, it's now Mysuru. Um, and both Bangalore and Mysore feature in the story we will look at today. And somewhere in between is Srirangapatna, which was the capital of, of uh, Tipu Sultan and also of uh, previous rulers. Uh, so, so that is some kind of uh, idea for you of locating geographically uh, the place where people we will discuss today lived and worked and died. Um, Now, Haider, the father, and son Tipu accomplished what other Indian chiefs in the south or anywhere else in India of the 18th century did not accomplish. One, they provided stable rule to a large area. Two, they managed to create prosperity for sufficient numbers or good, good numbers. Three, they established what for the time was an impressive system of administration and finance. And four, they gave fierce and on occasion victorious battle to the British. For many in today's India, Haider and Tipu are iconic figures of Indian pride and resistance. But for many others, they are Muslims above all. And the well-established harshness against Hindu adversaries in some of their military campaigns is presented as evidence of Muslim bigotry in general. As a student of history, I prefer to steer clear of this present day debate in India, though I have my views. My effort is to understand their lives in their times. My effort is to understand their lives in their times and to avoid the intrusion in discussions of the past of what a participant last evening here 
aptly called presentism. Presentism. I want to avoid the intrusion into our discussions of the past of presentism. When Tipu was defeated and killed in 1799, he and his father Hyder Ali had between them ruled Mysore for 40 years. Although I'll be speaking of these two, I will try to focus also on Diwan or Minister Krishnacharya Purnaya. Uh, I mentioned how names change, spellings change, pronunciations also, of course, are, are different. And Purnaya, this man, this painting, by the way, uh, uh, this photograph uh, of, of a painting that exists in the in one of the museums at the University of Yale, New Haven. I don't know the name of the artist, but it's an interesting painting of Purnaya. So here we have him spelled with A-Y-Y-A at the end, but you also have his name spelled with I-A-H at the end, Purnaya. Sometimes he's spelled P-U-R-N-A-I-A-H, Purnaya. Uh, now, impressions of Haider and Tipu are provided by many uh, historians, writers. Uh, one of the men who provided the bulk of the original material, you might say, which is still used by many, I'm speaking of those who do their study and research in English, uh, is a man called Mark Wilkes, who wrote a four-volume history on my sword within a dozen years of Tipu's death. Uh, Wilkes arrived in India in 1777 as an 18-year-old soldier for the East India Company, joined wars against Tipu in 1792, which was a big major war, and then in 79, the war that finally finished and uh, ended Tipu's life. And Wilkes also helped run Mysore as the British chief of Mysore, resident as it was called, sometime after Tipu's death. Now, here's the interesting part also. Later, as the East India Company's governor of St. Helena. Where is St. Helena? It's a remote island in southern Atlantic, somewhere between Brazil to the far west and southern Africa to the distant east, which is where Napoleon was interned. And Mark Wilkes happened to be the governor of that island. So he and Napoleon discussed many questions, including Tipu and Haida. In 1816, in tiny St. Helena, Wilkes discussed Britain's new and larger possession farther in the East with the defeated master of France, who had become the prisoner of Wilkes. This was interesting for Wilkes because at that time, in the 1790s, in the early 1810s, Many in England were speaking of Napoleon and Tipu in the same breath. Another man who confronted both Tipu and Napoleon was Arthur Wellesley, better known later as the Duke of Wellington. As a young officer, Wellesley played an important part in the 1799 assault on Srirangapatna, the capital of Mysore, in which Tipu was killed. In 1815, in the famous Battle of Waterloo, Arthur Wellesley triumphed over Napoleon. 
those who read English history or British history regard that as a very important battle. And there was Napoleon. So Wilkes had this interesting connection with both Napoleon and Tipu. Modern Indian historians have, with good reason, charged Wilkes with bias. Wilkes was, after all, a participant in the clash between the East India Company and Tipu. He was not a detached observer of the scene. His detailed account is definitely one-sided. Nonetheless, his images bring, to some extent, the times of Hyder and Tipu to life. Not long after Tipu's death and British victory in 1799, a French priest called Jean-Antoine Dubois, forgive my pronunciation here, who wrote a famous book on Hindu customs in southern India. He would claim that the people of the Kannada and Tamil tracts, where Dubois had spent three decades, quote, hate and despise their white rulers from the bottom of their hearts. But Abbey Dubois added, the people at the same time cherish and respect the administrative machinery run by British officials. They don't like the British rulers, but they like the way the government is being run. This is his assessment. Before the British had taken over in Mysore, Du Bois added, the people cherished and respected the Indian princes holding sway over them. But they hated the native administration which, according to him, was, quote, under the supremacy of the Brahmins. In, in Du Bois's view, quote, the rule of all the Hindu princes, often that of the Muslim princes, was, properly speaking, Brahminical rule since all posts of confidence were held by Brahmins. Brahmins remained influential in British-run pockets of South India. By the 1750s, this is before uh, Hyder and Tipu and their clash with the British, a company officer often referred to, quote, my Brahmin, the man who kept his accounts, translated for him, assisted him in different ways, and became the link between the officer and the South Indian public. Now, Hyder was a Mysorean, born in 1721 or 22, whose relatives in earlier generations had soldiered for the Adil Shahis of Bijapur in southern India. I mentioned yesterday how South India at this time uh, was not ruled by one ruler, but different chiefs were ruling different pockets. And the Adil Shahis of Bijapur were an important ruling group. And Haider's forebears had worked for the Adil Shahis. His soldiering skills gave Haider opportunities. Mysore was overextended and also targeted. The Marathas, who were another very important and powerful, influential Indian group, headquartered in Pune in Western India, were making incursions. The Nizam of Hyderabad was doing likewise. In 18th century India, Indian chiefs were not primarily fighting the Europeans, they were primarily fighting one another. A mercenary soldier to begin with, Haider became the commander-in-chief of Mysore's army and finally Mysore's de facto ruler. While claiming to rule in the name of the Wadiyars, the Hindu clan long occupying the throne of Mysore. When with his fighting skills, Haider compelled the Marathas to raise their siege of Bengaluru, he became a hero across the Kannada country. He returned in triumph to Srirangapatna, the capital, where the titular ruler, Krishna Raja Wadiyar, named him Nawab 
Haider Ali Khan. So a soldier becomes commander-in-chief and Nawab, kind of ruler. By, 19, by 1761, though reluctant to call himself Raja or King, the 39-year-old Haider was Mysore's unchallenged ruler, often spoken of as Sultan Haider, Sultan Haider. He gave Mysore stable rule, but the state was being squeezed by the British with Travancore supporting them on the Malabar coast, as well as from Madras, from the British, squeezed also by the Marathas, who were to the northwest of Mysore, by the Nizam of Hyderabad to their northeast, and to the Dawab of Arcot to their southeast. In addition to Mark Wilkes, another graphic source for the period is Francis Buchanan, also known as Francis Hamilton, an East India Company doctor asked by the Calcutta-based Governor General. Calcutta was the capital for the British of, of India as a whole. Asked by the Calcutta-based Governor General, the man who had planned the war to finish the plan the war that finally finished Tipu to journey across Tipu's late domain and report on its castes, crops, minerals, and more. This Governor General, Richard Wellesley, better known as Lord Mornington, was Arthur Wellesley's older brother. So we have Arthur Wellesley, who's also the Duke of Wellington. We have we have Richard Wellesley, and who is also known as Lord Mornington. We have Francis Buchanan, also known as Francis Ham Hamilton. So the Indians are not the only ones with more than one name. Commenced within weeks of the downfall of Tipu, Dr. Buchanan's journey led to a remarkable three-volume report that paints for us the Mysore, Kanara, and Malabar of the year 1800. Though ill-disposed towards Tipu, Buchanan made positive remarks about Tipu's father, Hyder Ali. That tyrant received the country in a very, about, he writes about Tipu, that tyrant Tipu received the country in a very flourishing state from his father, of whom every native whom I have conversed with on the subject speaks in terms of the highest respect. So Buchanan has traveled right across my soul. And he say, he finds that every person that he has spoken to in Mysore speaks with the highest respect of Haider. Haider's speaking and writing capacities, such as they were, are mentioned by Wilkes. He could neither read nor write any language, but apart from Hindustani, which was his mother tongue, he also spoke with entire fluency the Canarese language, Canada as we would call it today, Marathi, Telugu, and Tamil of the Persic Persian or Arabic language, Haider Ali had no knowledge whatsoever. Seven years after Haider's death, a 28-year-old company lieutenant in southern India called Thomas Monroe, he would later acquire fame as the most significant British governor of Madras presidency, a very large area, wrote to his father in Scotland, Seven years after Haider's death, when Tipu was ruling Mysore, Thomas Munro wrote to his father in Scotland of the strength of the Mysore that Tipu was ruling at the time in the year 1790-1790. Mysore has the most simple and despotic monarchy in the world, in which every department, civil and military, 
possesses the regularity and system created by the genius of Haider, which with all independent chiefs and zamindars subjected or extirpated, and justice severely and impartially administered to every class of people, a numerous and well-disciplined army kept up, gives to the government a vigor hitherto unexampled in India. Well before Buchanan and Monroe penned their comments and Wilkes, in fact, while Haider was alive, a Frenchman called Maestre de la Tour, who headed Haider's artillery for a time, wrote a biography of his master. In de la Tour's account, Haider's court in Sri Rangapatna, quote, is the most brilliant in India, unquote. Jewels abound. The horse guard is Abyssinian. Dazzling in beauty and skill, young dancing girls with bells on their feet are summoned from nearby temples to entertain Haider's guests. Swedes, Irishmen, Europeans of different kinds are in Haider's service. He adjudicates quarrels among Europeans. Haider spends each day dictating letters to a clutch of Brahmin secretaries. Now, this image of Haider dictating letters to a number of Brahmin secretaries at the same time is provided by more than one witness. He's working away, and he has these, he himself cannot write, but he has these different Brahmin secretaries who are proficient in different Southern Indian languages, and is dictating letters all the time to these Brahmin secretaries. Now, the Brahmin closest to Haider was Purnaya. Born in 1746 to Krishna Charya and Lakshmi Bai, Vaishnavites of the Madhva sect. As a direct descendant of Purnaya told me, Divan Purnaya was Kanara Madhva Brahmin, that is Brahmin by caste, Madhva by doctrine, with Kannada as his language. Madhvas are followers of the 13th century thinker saint Madhvacharya. As is also well known, other southern Brahmins include followers of Madhvacharya's predecessors, Shankara, who perhaps lived in the 8th century or even earlier, and Ramanuja of the 11th and 12th centuries. Purnaya was recruited first by a Hindu merchant, Annadana Shetty, who was replenishing the stores of Hyderali. Noticing Purnaya's skills, Hyder's Brahmin treasurer Krishna Rao hired him. As Krishna Rao's man, Purnaya went at times to Hyder's place. Impressed by Purnaya's memory, flair for numbers, and truthfulness, Haider made him additional treasurer when he was just 20 plus, almost on par with Krishna Rao. While Krishna Rao kept accounts in Marathi, Purnaya maintained all entries in Kannada. Before long, Haider gave Purnaya, who was in his mid-twenties, charge over the purchases of his army, sent him to battlefields, and gave him a jagir, an estate, in Mysore Taluka. Haider's trust had been won by Purnaya, who would become his minister after Haider's death in 1782, Tipu's minister. In 1799, after Tipu fell and the British took over, Purnaya became their minister or Diwan too, and remained in that position until 1812. Here is what Haider apparently told Divan Purnaya in 1782 in a private conversation in an army camp near Kumbakona. 
Between me and the English, there are mutual, grand, mutual grounds for dissatisfaction, but not sufficient cause for war. The defeat of Baileys and Braithwaite's will not destroy them. Now, Bailey and Braithwaite were two British officers whom Tipu had defeated. The defeats of Baileys and Braithwaite's will not destroy them. I can ruin English resources on land, but I cannot dry up the sea. Unquote. Shortly after this reported conversation with Purnaya, Haider died in a village in Chitpur district, not very far from South India's east coast. Purnaya and other officers tried to conceal the death. The body was disguised as treasure and taken out in a large chest, while other bearers carried a palki, palanquin, which is, a, you might say, a a car without wheels uh, carried by human beings. Learned, uh, so other bearers carried a palki which was festooned to suggest that the Sultan was seated inside. Yet word leaked out. Through its Indian spies, the East India Company learned of Haider's death before the news reached Tipu, who at the time was on the opposite coast, western coast. A bid to prevent Tipu's succession was mounted by a cousin of his called Muhammad Amin, ostensibly on behalf of Tipu's younger brother, Abdul Karim. But Purnaya and other ministers were alert. They called Amin for consultation, put him in chains, and he was removed under guard, as if by Haider's personal orders, for conspiring to overthrow the government while expecting Haider's death. A decade or so later, in 1791 and 1792, Lord Charles Cornwallis, now those of you who have read US history, will know that Cornwallis was a veteran of the war for American independence on the British side that the British lost. In 1791 and 1792, Cornwallis went from the US to India, became Governor General of India, and personally commanded campaigns to finish Tipu. He was not successful, but he tried in 1791 and 1792. Some of his units tried to reach Sri Rangapatna via Bengaluru, which in 1791, some of you have been to Bangalore, which is a population of what? 7 million? Something like that. In 1791, Bangalore had a circumference of about 3 miles. Wilkes, in his book, writes of prominent Brahmins around Tipu, who during this conflict of 1791-92 were charged with treason and executed. An unnamed Indian spy, recruited by Cornwallis's intelligence chief, was caught by Tipu's men, who found an incriminating letter in Canada in the spy's hollow walking stick. Writes Wilkes, a Muslim official who knew Canada was ordered to examine the letter. The writer of the letter was identified. He was seized. According to Wilkes, this writer was, quote, a Brahmin forcibly circumcised and now named Mahmoud Abbas. The letter implicated Shesh Giri Rao, the brother of the treasurer Krishna Rao the long-serving Krishna Rao, who had given Purnaya that early break, 
not only Seshagiri Rao, but also Krishna Rao and two other brothers were charged with conspiring to eliminate Tipu. According to Wilkes, they were all, quote, privately tortured and dispatched. They were killed. After Tipu's fall, Wilkes discussed with Divan Purnaya, with whom he worked closely. I told you that after Tipu's death, Purnaya was named the minister by the British also. So Wilkes talks with him and discusses this incident. He, he wanted to discuss this treason charge against Krishna Rao and his brothers. Writes Wilkes, quote, I could never get Purnaya to give an opinion, unquote. According to Wilkes, Abbas admitted his guilt before Tipu, by whom he was summoned, but he refused to implicate others. He was put to death by being publicly dragged at the foot of an elephant. Whether Wilkes is telling everything truthfully or not, his narrative reveals a few things. One, that throughout his rule, Tipu employed Brahmin officers to control funds. Two, Punishment for treachery was merciless. Three, loyalty to Tipu was a value that Mysore's Brahmins continued to cherish 10 years or more after Tipu was dead and the British were ruling. Four, in South India's battles at the end of the 18th century, intelligence played a key role. Purnaya, who worked successively with both sides, remained totally discreet with Wilkes a top-level imperial officer. For survival, discretion was a must. Traveling across Mysore a few months after Tipu's death, Francis Buchanan was told, he does not state by whom, that Tipu had once asked Purnaya to become a Muslim. Apparently, Purnaya, in response, merely said, I'm your slave, and he retired. Thereafter, several persons, including Tipu's mother, described by Buchanan as a very respectable lady, told Tipu that he should leave Puraya alone. Pressure on him would throw everything into confusion. Buchanan continues, Tipu very properly allowed the matter to rest, unquote. From the words quoted, it appears not only likely but almost certain that the story was told to Buchanan by Purnaya himself. We know from Buchanan's account that he had called and talked with Purnaya in Sri Rangapatna. We also know that the very respectable lady, Tipu's mother, Haida's wife, was someone who had known and understood Purnaya for many years. On the walls of a palace in the capital, Buchanan saw paintings requisitioned by Tipu, including one showing Haida and Tipu in procession, a second showing the defeat of Colonel Bailey. Other panels portrayed some of Mysore's numerous ethnicities. An intriguing painting taken from one of these panels and published in Buchanan's book in 1810 or something like that is of an unnamed Brahmin with his wife and son. This artist also is not named. Now, I visited Sri Rangapatna in January of this year to see that area. And my visit showed that the Lal Mahal Palace, which Buchanan had greatly admired, had long gone. Its damaged walls were demolished by the British in 1807. <coughs> the ancient temple of Sri Ranganatha Swami, an ancient temple which is 
just close to Tipu's palace. That, that temple was protected by Tipu. I found this temple to be newly painted and thick with followers, while two similarly ancient temples stood close to the site of Tipu's residence. One named after Shiva in his form as Lord of the Ganga River, and the other named after Narasimha, the half-man, half-lion incarnation of Vishnu. In the palace with panels that Buchanan had visited, uh, wall portraits still intact include those of Krishna Raja Wadia II, my source titular ruler from 1734 to 1766, the Hindu Rajas at that time of Kurg, Chitradurg, and Banaras, the Maratha Peshwa Balaji Bajirao II, the Muslim Nawab of Arcot, and Kempegowda I, who had founded Bangalore in the 16th century. A street now called Purnaya Street contained houses, I found, where it seems even now only Brahmins reside. Evidently, during Tipu's time, also only Brahmins lived on this street. If Purnaya, as we may assume, also resided there, it would have been a short walk or carriage ride between his home and Tipu's palace, because nobody knew where Purnaya might have lived. Now, to go back to the 1792 fight under Cornwallis, which resulted in, you might say, half a victory for the British, but the eventual end came seven years later. So in, in, in that fight, Cornwallis and Mark Wilkes and others describe the very strong fight and resistance that Tipu put up and the support that Tipu received from the people of, of Mysore uh, in that fight. Uh, also, he speaks of the remarkable intelligence uh, that Tipu was able to muster and how his agents were always keeping Tipu informed of the British progress and also keeping the British misinformed about what was happening uh, with my source soldiers. And we know that Wilkes has a very sharply negative view of, of Tipu. But his, therefore, we are interested in his observations, the abilities of Tipu and his men. He speaks about his, his willingness to fight, his promptitude, his judgment, and so forth. Uh, he says, the admirable efficiency of the Sultan's light troops had prevented all communication of General Abercrombie's situation, one of Cornwallis's allies in another uh, theater of the war, on which Cornwallis's determinations would very materially depend. Uh, now, some Maratha, I should add this. I mentioned how many of the Indian chiefs were fighting with one another rather than with the British. So two very important chiefs in the area who supported the British against uh, Tipu and uh, previously against Hyder were the Marathas, Pune based and the Nizam Hyderabad based. So some Maratha units who were plundering in Tipu's richest province, Vidhanur, had meanwhile pillaged the ancient Hindu monastery, <coughs> Matha as it's called, Matha Monastery, possibly founded in the 9th century of, at Sringeri which lay about 75 miles northwest of Srirangapatna. The monastery was desecrated by the Maratha allies of the British. Many defenders were killed, and the raiders made off with about 6 million rupees in cash or jewels. The monastery's head, successor to an unbroken, life, unbroken line of chief priests, he was called the Shankaracharya, appealed for aid to Tipu whose support the monastery had evidently received 
from 1785 onwards. That appeal and Tipu's positive response form part of a well-preserved 1791 correspondence conducted not in Persian but in Kannada that discloses Tipu's unqualified support for the monastery, his instruction to the Asif or the provincial governor of Bidanur to help the chief priest, the Shankaracharya, the latter's appreciation for aid and security received, and also the Shankaracharya's blessings for a Tipu striving to defend his territory. So again, this 1792 war. Releasing two of his English prisoners, Tipu sent a feeler for peace through them. The Treaty of Srirangapatna that quickly emerged included a medieval element on which the British had insisted. Tipu was not only to give the Confederates, the British, the Nizam, the Baratas, half his territory, plus 33 million rupees. He also had to hand over two of his sons to Cornwallis as hostages to be returned when the damages were fully paid. There is Cornwallis and the two sons of Tipu, hostages. So until the money was to be paid, the British would keep these two boys. Um, the boys were taken to the company's secure fort in Velour with Lieutenant Thomas Monroe, future governor of Madras presidency, commanding the escort, and then to Fort St. George. And of course, lands taken from Mysore were divided between the British, the Marathas, and the Nizam of Hyderabad. I should, by the way, mention one very interesting website that some of you may wish to go to if you are interested um, for more about Tipu. Uh, and, and his battles with the British. And this is called, so I can get my page, www.tiger and thistle, one word, tiger and thistle.net, www.tiger and thistle.net. Uh, that, that has many paintings, uh, especially from the British at that time, that revealed to you the interest the British at that time took in Tipu. Joseph Michaud, a Frenchman familiar with Sri Rangapatna both before and after Tipu's fall, would write, The city of Sri Rangapatna had become one of the most important in Hindustan. The island on which it is situated is three miles and a half long, about a mile and a half broad, it rises to a great height in the middle of the river Kaveri, slopes rapidly to the bank. According to Michaud, after the 1792 defeat, the capital was strengthened with ramparts, moats, entrenchments, with many Frenchmen assisting in the work. In times of peace, the city was very flourishing. Tipu at his court had kept at his court the sons of the polygars, rich chiefs in the neighborhood as a pledge of their loyalty, again, the medieval element. This made Sri Rangapatna the residence of the most distinguished and the most wealthy families of Mysore and Kanara. Gold work, jewelry, watchmaking made remarkable progress in the city. The population increased remark considerably under Hyder Ali and Tipu Sahib. A large number of Frenchmen had settled down in the capital, the majority of whom remained there after its conquest by the British. 
engaged in mechanical trades such as watchmaking and gold work. The trade of a gunsmith was the most favored of all by Tipu Sahib, adds Joseph Michaud, but only the Muslim religion obtained great prominence and favor. Now, worried by Mysore's energy, the London of 1797, now five years after that half victory by the British, the London of 1797 clamored for a more expansionist India policy. Richard Wellesley, the Earl of Mornington, an imperialist to the core who disliked France and its anti-monarchy Jacobins who were emerging, was named Governor General. Sharpening the Anglo-French rivalry, the year 1798 saw the eastward advance of Napoleon. In May, Napoleon was in Egypt. In July, he captured Cairo. But in August, the English Navy defeated him in the Battle of the Nile. When word of that last result reached India, confidence was injected in the new governor general and his 30-year-old younger brother, Arthur Wellesley, who had arrived in India a year before his brother arrived as governor general. This confidence was sorely needed, for through their spies, the British had also learned that Napoleon had assured the radicals still in control in Paris that as soon as he had conquered Egypt, he would establish relations with the Indian princes and together with them attack the English in their Indian possessions. Richard Wellesley, the governor general, succeeded in winning over the Marathas and also the Nizam. So Nizam becomes his ally, the Marathas become his ally, and then the 1799 war takes place, which I will not go into great detail with at all. Uh, this uh, was, a, was a very interesting and remarkable war, but it's, uh, you can read about it. The oft-described fall of Seringapatam, as the British said, on 4 May 1799 was a huge imperial event which even Napoleon's defeat in 1815 would not greatly eclipse in the Britain of that time. For years afterwards, British novelists, including Walter Scott, and British artists would pair the Corsican and the Marsorian. During some pre-1799 moments, Britain's India enterprise had suddenly seemed shaky. When it was Tipu who expired, London exploded in celebration, and paintings, exhibitions, and novels turned the fall of Serengapatam into a triumph that would abide in English memory. In April of the year 1800, an enormous canvas, 21 feet high and 120 feet long, portraying the storming of Serengapatam, would open in London to be seen by large crowds over the following nine months. Um, do I have five more minutes? Okay. For 48 hours after Tipu's fall, the company's generals were unable to prevent looting and killing by their triumphant soldiers, but an effort was made to protect Tipu's family. And the sons who previously had been kept hostages and had been returned were identified. And then Purnaya was summoned by the British, the minister. Purnaya did not know what his fate was going to be. After all, he had been a commander also of, the, of a section of the army. So he waited a few days and finally his family was already in this area that the British were controlling. So finally he went and met the British. 
and he was invited then to stay on and govern, help govern. But in his first conversation with the British, Purnaya requested them that Tipu's son Pate Haider should be placed on the throne or be given a principality. But the British did not accept that advice, seeing that the really powerful Muslim chiefs were all dead. Uh, the British rulers concluded that a Muslim rebellion in Mysore was not on the cards. Uh, Fort St. George was consulted, others were consulted, and they all agreed that not Tipu's son, but a five-year-old descendant of the displaced Hindu dynasty, a young boy called Krishna Raja, who was then living incognito with a relative, should be placed on the throne of Mysore. So this is an interesting thing to learn, that in making their decisions, the British consulted a number of people. It was not one person's decision, six or seven of them. And even though they respected Purnaya and they kept him because they wanted some continuity, but they decided that the throne would be given back to this five-year-old boy from the old dynasty. As Wilkes would write, the practical efficiency of the government was secured by the uncommon talents of Purnaya. And that efficiency was directed to proper objects by the control exercised by the English government. Wilkes tells a story about Tipu that he probably heard from Purnaya. It goes like this. This is about earlier time. Tipu's application was intense and incessant. He preferred to write with his own hand the draft of almost every dispatch. A secret emissary sent to Pune, because Tipu was also hoping at the last minute to cultivate Maratha support. A secret emissary sent to Pune had evidently informed Tipu in report after report that the money given to him had been spent. He wanted, he needed more money. After several months of inaction, Tipu finally gave a draft to a secretary saying, let this be dispatched to the man in Pune, send this dispatch to Pune. The secretary said, here I am. I am the man who was in Pune, and I'm now back here taking down dictations from you. Having returned for work for, for some weeks from mere necessity, he had shown up daily at the Darbar, but Tipu had not noticed. The Sultan for once hung down his head, writes Wilkes. It shows how absorbed or self-absorbed uh, Tipu was. Well versed in Kannada and Sanskrit, knowing Persian as well as any Muslim noble of the Mysore of Haider and Tipu, Purnaya understood English too, but did not speak it. Unlike Haider and, I'm sorry, under Haider and Tipu, his official correspondence was conducted in Persian. Apart from his expertise with money and numbers, he had managed the commissariat and raised troops and also personally commanded a large section of soldiers. A story current among the people, but lacking a source, was that when asked once by Tipu to undertake a tricky diplomatic mission, Purnaya told him, neither of us is fit for diplomacy. I will never tell a lie and you will never tell the truth. It was said that when Tipu's mother heard the reply, she went into a fit of laughter. If this story suggests that Purnaya enjoyed the privilege of one-on-one -on -one conversations with Tipu, as he had earlier with Haider, it also confirms what we had glimpsed earlier, a relationship of understanding 
between Tipu's mother and this South Indian Brahmin. As Diwan, following the British triumph, Purnaya, short, light-skinned, hard-working, would save money, build roads and dams, and win praise from the company. But the British did not give him real authority. They frequently overruled him, and they also denied his request for a continuing diwanship in the family. Purnaya wanted his son also to be made a diwan. The British said no. He was instead given a large estate, rich in timber, plants, and water in Yelandur, not very far from the Coimbatore district, from where in his boyhood he had moved to Sri Rangapatna. Given in 1807, the lands would stay with the family until the 1970s. Krishnavacharya Purnaya died on 27 March 1812 in Sri Rangapatna, not many months after young Krishna Raja attained maturity and the regency of the Diwan ended. So that's the end of my talk. I'll just mention one other uh, book that those of you interested may wish to read. It's written by a woman called Kate Brittle Brittlebank. Kate Brittlebank, an Australian lady, a professor at Monash University in Melbourne, a fairly new book.